Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for an interview with Martha Herbert, Assistant Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School, a pediatric neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, and an expert on the new paradigm of autism research and treatment. Martha Herbert, welcome to the new school. Thank you. You are an assistant professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, a pediatric neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and your primary interest is in autism and autism spectrum disorders. Let's start with the fundamentals. Is autism increasing in our time? One reads a lot about that, but the question is whether that's a real increase in incidence or a change in diagnostic categories. I think the trouble with that question is the either-or quality, uh, the implication that it can only be one or the other. I personally think it's both. Uh, it is true that we have developed more uh, comprehensive ways of ferreting out features of autism spectrum disorder in individuals who might otherwise have been considered either odd or to have ADHD or something else. Um, it's true that more people are aware of autism. Uh, all of this is true. And at the same time, even when you factor all of this in, if you ask seasoned practitioners, if you ask school teachers, many, many of these people will tell you that they're seeing way more affected uh, individuals, especially affected children, than they saw 20 years ago. So I, and I think that really... Aware, uh, an increase in numbers feeds awareness, and awareness also feeds the increase in numbers, but it's really both. You are a leader in uh, a community of researchers and scientists and clinicians who are referred to as part of uh, the new paradigm of autism research and treatment, cutting across many autism organizations. What is the new paradigm of autism research and treatment? The new paradigm of autism research and treatment starts from the premise that autism is a whole body systems condition. Uh, the traditional paradigm that has been informing the field for the last number of decades is that it's a behavioral disorder based upon altered brain properties, which in turn are based upon altered genetics. And there have been reasons to support each of those steps in the reasoning. Uh, there is a strong heritability, so that supports a role for genetics. And there have been abnormal findings in the brain, uh, or at least findings different from typical individuals in uh, brain tissue research and in brain imaging. Uh, so it's not that they're, they're, they're wrong with the model of genes to brain to behavior. It's just very incomplete because there's more going on. The whole body is involved, and there are many interacting things going involved, I mean, being involved. A article in Discover magazine that talked about your work was entitled Autism, It's Not Just in the Head, uh, and it suggested that uh, the derangements of autism also show up in the gut and the immune system, and as you, I believe, have written, it may be that the brain is downstream in autism. It may be a whole-body disorder. Yeah. 
I think that's right. Um, the, the, the main things that we really don't, we don't really know enough uh, to say whether the brain is downstream or hit in parallel with what's hitting the rest of the body, or again, both. But I think we do know enough to say that it isn't something where the brain has its problems and by some odd coincidence these children for separate reasons also have gut and immune problems. I think it's, a, it's, it's worth our while to think about these things as related until proven otherwise. So the emerging paradigm, the new paradigm, suggests that there's an interaction between vulnerable genes and a whole wide set of environmental triggers, and that low-dose, multiple toxic and infectious exposures may contribute to the autism spectrum. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would say accurate, although even they're incomplete because there are other kinds of stressors as well, just general emotional uh, time stress, who knows about things like electromagnetic. In other words, there are many different types of stressors even beyond the ones that you listed. But yes, I would say basically right. Right. Now, along with the apparent increase uh, in the number of children affected, there's been a a huge uh, parent movement in the United States and also around the world of parents uh, uh, who have found clinicians who claim that they can treat uh, children with these autism spectrum disorders, and that with these treatments, uh, dietary detoxification treatments and the like, uh, some of these children improve or may even recover. How strong is the evidence that that is true? At this point in time, there's a lot of so-called anecdotal evidence, a lot of recovery stories. The publication of this of this, of case studies and group studies relating to this are just starting to happen. Uh, so uh, I think in terms of the kind of evidence that people expect, the class one type of evidence, there's not a lot of evidence, uh, but there is effort to start to move in that direction. Have you personally seen children who have improved or recovered with these treatments? Yes, I uh, in terms of rough order of magnitude, how many of these children are you personally confident that you've seen have improved with these treatments? Some of the children that I've seen, I've seen in person and have not been able to distinguish from a typically developing child. And I then have also seen videos of them being severely affected. Um, I can't give a percentage to that, but I, I do, I have seen enough uh, children where I have seen before and after to feel that there's a potential for really quite striking improvement. When we talk about the autism spectrum, uh, that's from, uh, I think you've suggested that there are in fact many different kinds of autism, but on a spectrum, there's a spectrum for, from very severe dysfunction, including retardation, to actually extraordinarily gifted people, Asperger's syndrome. Um, so it seems like there are at least uh, two axes to this. One is all the different kinds of autism, and then the other is the axis of uh, differences in, um, in functional status and intellectual capacity and so forth. Well, I would like to make a distinction between functional status and intellectual capacity. Right. There are uh, individuals who 
cannot talk and who have trouble controlling their behaviors, varying combinations of those things, who, when given assisting assistive communication devices, can communicate sometimes really sophisticated thoughts and even language that they can type even though they can't make the words orally. So it, it even becomes more differentiated than the two axes that you say. And in my own family, uh, my father's uh, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, there are four children on the autism spectrum in a family that in previous generations never had any uh, children that we know of uh, on the autism spectrum. So this has been uh, quite a personal experience for me. And I have noticed that many of those children have the gut disorders, the uh, food sensitivities uh, that many of the uh, families are reporting and many of the clinicians are treating. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, you know, when you start to look for it, you see it uh, quite, a, quite a lot. I should say that in my clinical experience, these disorders are not confined to autism either. And in my own clinical evolution to this uh, position that the way that I see things now, um, I began to take more and more um, thorough medical histories and find this, this kind of thing in ADHD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and other things as well. So, in fact, there's a, a, a relationship in your judgment uh, between the uh, clinical uh, portrait of the autism spectrum disorder children or people and a, a much wider range of, uh, of uh, neurological conditions and perhaps of health conditions more broadly. I think that's right. I think that it's, it's definitely with more neurological conditions. And when you start looking at the biochemical and immune abnormalities, at that level, the boundaries break down between the neurodevelopmental and neuropsychiatric conditions and conditions more broadly. There's a researcher in Europe, uh, Sabine Bonn, who called autism uh, in a meeting I was at, she called it diabetes of the brain. How interesting. Could you say more about what she meant by that? That there are cellular signaling problems, particularly in inflammation and oxidative stress paths, stress pathways which are similar to the cellular problems that you see in autism. Uh -huh. Now, you have written about the fact and, and demonstrated that some autist, autistic spectrum children have large brains. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, uh, there are many qualities to these uh, uh, children. Uh, they, some of them don't read emotional cues well, but may be extraordinarily gifted in uh, mathematics and uh, in, uh, in geography and in many other fields. Um, how do we read the, it seems to me, the focus in autism is so often on the deficits, but how do we read the implications of the sometimes extraordinary capacities that autistic spectrum people have? That's, that's one of the most important questions. Um, and it's a challenge even for people like me who are particularly focused on the medical problems that may lead to, for example, the problem of large brains, and in particular 
there seems to be evidence that this could be related to a neuroinflammatory or immune activation process. And if that's the case, and at the same time you have someone who's very gifted, you have something which is paradoxically describable as a disease process, and yet at the same time there's an enhancement. One um, speculation about this is that there's a delicate neuro... This is a speculation, so I should say there might be a delicate neurochemical balance which some people have, for example, more glutamate, more excitatory, arousal-oriented neurochemicals, and that puts them closer to an edge that they can get tipped over with certain kinds of environmental stressors so that a tendency to giftedness might even be a risk factor for some of the environmental challenges. But that's just a speculation. At this point, I don't think anybody's done enough work at this level to piece that apart. But, but it's a critically important question. I know an extraordinary young man, for example, uh, with Asperger's, who um, can learn languages by essentially glancing at vocabulary sheets. He says, you know, romance languages he can l- learn by reading the, the vocabulary once, and Japanese takes him three, you know, three reviews. Oh, dear. You know, and, and and he is an extraordinary pianist. Uh, he knows the you know capitals of every country in the world, and and so on. Uh, anything that he gets interested in, he becomes uh, extraordinarily knowledgeable about. And so, this question of of the nature of these uh, amazing gifts. Uh, just seems to me to be a question that should interest us just as much as the deficits do. Yeah, we had in our speaker at Mass General a few weeks ago, we had Laurent Montron from Montreal come and speak with us, and he's extremely interested in this question. And he works with Michelle Dawson, who's on his research team, and she has autism. And she just published her first, first author paper. Uh, so she's very active, articulate, brilliant researcher herself. And um, he has done very careful research showing that it's not just that there's a perceptual superiority at the level of local or detailed processing, but that there is not a, a loss at the global level. And at the end of his talk, he speculated about the evolutionary implications of the potentiality shown by these people. Um, this is a, a dicey area to talk about, and my former mentor who was there actually walked out on the talk at this point because he thought that was really out of line to make those speculations, but I can understand why it would be tempting. He, has, he got into this from watching about 20 years ago, watching an autistic draftsman draw at the level where those of us who are not on the spectrum would start with sketching out the whole thing and then fill in the details. This person did it entirely at the level of fine details, and yet still, when the whole was complete, had a perfectly proportioned drawing. And this is a drawing strategy that the rest of us wouldn't even begin to contemplate. So what does this say about how the brain is working in order to be able to do something like that? And I just don't think we know very well. I've been in in conversations with uh, technology experts, very high-level technology experts uh, in the information sciences in Silicon Valley, where uh, these young uh, geniuses 
joke about how uh, uh, marriages between, I forget, mathematicians and physicists have a higher uh, uh, incidence of children with uh, autism and how they, they seem to regard it as a, uh, a potential uh, hazard of uh, the coming together of uh, people who are particularly gifted in some of these fields. Is there anything to that? Do we know anything about whether uh, people in physics, the sciences, whatever, tend to have more autistic children, or is that an urban myth? Well, I think, I don't know that data very well. I don't think there's that much data. Um, I think it's been blown out of proportion in the sense that there are people who use this as the explanation for the whole increase, that it's just the, the uh, computer people suddenly becoming attractive to each other and reproducing where they didn't reproduce before. And I think that, that there are plenty of people with autism who don't have parents who are physicists or mathematicians. And so, um, so you don't make much of that. I don't, I, but I don't completely dismiss it either. I mean, I have seen in my own clinical practice plenty of parents like that. Um, but I can't, um, I just don't think that, I think that we're, where we have to be careful is just writing off the whole thing as the Silicon Valley disease. But isn't it, isn't it possible that the autism spectrum, as we call it, is really part of a, a broader spectrum, a spectrum of uh, ways of human functioning that, for example, uh, that many of the computer scientists and, uh, and people with skills like that often do have less skills in uh, reading emotional uh, uh, vocabulary and they may be more specialized in the kinds of skills that are extraordinarily developed in, Asper in some Asperger's people. So may it not be that in autism we're seeing the end of a distribution curve, but in fact many of those extraordinary skills and likewise some of the emotional deficits are, uh, are found in a broader population of gifted people. I would say that... Um yeah, I mean, sure. Um, we all have our different imbalances, and you have, it's not just autism, you'll have people who are artistic have mood swings, like the, what some people would then later call bipolar, whether they actually meet criteria or not. Um, maybe one of the, the things that needs to go here is the myth of the perfectly balanced normal person. Right. Like that bumper sticker that says, if you think someone's normal, you just don't know them very well. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's go back to the therapies that are uh, apparently uh, improving the uh, function and uh, sometimes uh, helping some of these uh, young people recover. Clearly, the, the widely accepted therapies for autism are behavioral. Uh, uh, but the... Uh, the controversial therapies tend to be nutritional therapies and detoxification therapies. How do you appraise the complex world of alternative and complementary medicine, functional medicine, clinical ecology, all the different uh, 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 medicines that, at least in the United States, are, are not uh, approved by the mainstream, and yet 
many of these medicines, uh, uh, exploring food allergies and chemical sensitivities, uh, nutritional supplements, and a variety of approaches to detoxification, are central uh, to the apparent improvement or recovery of some of these children. Right. Before I answer your question, I just want to briefly say that there are children who uh, experience substantial improvement or even recovery just from behavioral therapies. Yes. So I just want to say that before Absolutely. I launch into the yeah. other. Um, it's a very different way of looking at things than the disease model that seemed to be so much of in the ascendancy or triumphant that many of us were raised on. The 20th century uh, uh, fed this, the idea that you could uh, find this, the perfect drug for the perfect bug or for the perfect gene problem, and that that would be enough. Um, meanwhile, we've also had, with a lot less fanfare, such an increase in our understanding of biochemistry and of the immune system. And this idea emerged, uh, such as, you know, particularly with Linus Pauling, the idea of orthomolecular medicine, that there are biochemical processes that have cofactors, which are nutrients, and the modulation of those cofactors can affect the metabolic pathways. This idea has taken a lot of criticism, and um, but it won't go away. And I think one of the reasons it won't go away is that it makes it makes sense. And the and as and I think what's happening now scientifically is that as we advance in our abilities to measure more subtle things, we're finding more validation of features of both the the nutritional diet metabolic biochemical piece and of some of the allergy immune pieces that um, have been not particularly a part of the mainstream. So I'll just start with that as a conceptual frame. For a parent who has a child with autism spectrum disorder and begins to explore the world of clinicians who claim to help these children, this is a field I've been involved with for over 30 years, the, the field of uh, complementary and alternative medicine, and specifically uh, in my early years and looking closely at the role of nutrition in the learning and behavior disorders of children. And it seems to me that the parent has a terribly difficult task because some of these clinicians are gifted, ethical, grounded people, and others are really quite flaky. And um, so what is a parent to do? Uh, in how, what is the best direction for a parent to go in trying to discover if they want to explore these uh, nutritional and detoxification therapies? How do they find a good clinician to work with? Well, the first thing I want to say about that is I think that it works best if the parent takes major responsibility for educating him or herself. Um, the model that you go to the doctor, the doctor tells you what to do, you do it even if you don't understand what it is, doesn't work so well in this domain 
for a number of reasons. One of them is that there's a, it's a chronic problem that doesn't go away overnight. It's not like a sore throat. You take your 10 days of antibiotics and it goes away. Um, and um, another is you really need to, again, make judgment in, in, in judging these practitioners. Um, another thing that I think is important is starting with the basics. It's very important to get I think the basic diet um, and di- dietary and basic intake issues straightened out before you start doing radical things. I've had parents come to me wanting to do all kinds of esoteric therapies and wanting advice about it, and then when I take a dietary history, the child is drinking four quarts of Coca-Cola a day or, you know, eating nothing but cheese every day. And they're sort of skipping the step of getting a basic, healthful set of practices in place. And I think that's really important considering how many people these days have deeply imbalanced diets. Um, so I think that uh, it's very important to... and. Then, that's, that's just very critical. And another thing is an understanding that many of these things don't work fast or they may not work the first time, but then later on, after you've taken care of a number of other things, something that didn't work before can then be able to work, perhaps because the other things that were reinforcing the problem get fixed up. So again, each of these last few questions that you're asking me is very complicated, so I'm trying to find a place to start with it, and that's where I would start here. In terms of dietary impacts and, and the gut, uh, I understand that images of the gut of these uh, children done by uh, really solid researchers indicate that the, that the gut is often in a disordered state. And, and my recollection from the conversations I've heard and, and the research I've seen is that um, wheat and gluten allergies and dairy allergies, uh, which are common in the population as a whole, uh, may play a, a disproportionate role as a starting place in assessing the diets of these children. Is that accurate or inaccurate? Well, again, this is an area which is just starting to get the kind of research that will convince a skeptical, conventional um, pediatrician. I uh, was in a lecture for uh, the Autism Consortium around here about two or three weeks ago, and the lecture on treatment by Dr. Jean Frazier reviewed alternative treatments, and she did cite, provingly, that there were two uh, reputable, strong studies supporting gluten-free, casein-free diet as being beneficial in at least some children with autism. So that was both a report of evidence and at another level evidence that when you have evidence, it impresses people and then they will start talking about something like this. And another aspect of this that, that many parents are concerned with, obviously, and has been hugely controversial, has been the issue of whether uh, mercury in childhood vaccinations uh, contribute. Now, uh, I understand that that many researchers uh, regard the mercury issue as, as a bit of a red herring in terms of broader environmental 
uh, contributors to autism. What is your perspective on that? Well, my sense is that um, the, the, the perspective that makes sense to me has most recently been articulated uh, in, a, in a technically rich way by uh, Mark Noble from Rochester, who uh, published a paper as senior author in Public Library of Science in um, February about how lead and methylmercury and paraquat all stimulate the same molecular pathway. So what he says is that the cell doesn't care which toxin or heavy metal it is among a group. It will just freak out and set off this pathway and have a reaction related to oxidative stress. So on the one hand, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be mercury that would set this off. On the other hand, uh, it does. mercury is one of the things that can set this off. Um, I think that we have been cavalier about thinking that, oh, it's only a little bit, it won't matter. And we've done that with mercury, and we've done that with a whole lot of other things. And now, as we learn more about epigenetics and endocrine disruption and all kinds of things that operate at the level of very subtle, small effects, this is turning around and biting us. And we're finding that maybe all of our complacency, that if it didn't kill you, it's okay, is misplaced. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm talking with Dr. Martha Herbert, who is an assistant professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, a pediatric neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, and one of the nation's and indeed the world's uh, leading experts on the new paradigm of autism research and treatment. Let's turn now to the question of the politics of the new paradigm of autism research and treatment. There's a tremendous array of different organizations uh, uh, advocating on the behalf of uh, families and uh, research in autism, from uh, Defeat Autism Now to uh, uh, the Autism Association of America, many others. Could you uh, describe for us the, the significant players in the world of autism advocacy and how they are arrayed uh, on the continuum of their uh, interest in or uh, uh, exploration of the new paradigm paradigm of autism research and treatment? Well, sure. There are a lot of organizations whose main function is to advocate at the level of obtaining services and providing services for individuals with autism. And this is really important considering that public funding is, is ranges from inadequate to woefully inadequate, and people have to struggle, unfortunately, on a one-on-one, one-by-one basis to get the care for their children. It's nothing automatic in many cases. Um, so I'll put those to one side, the organizations who primarily do that. They are important in terms of how what they, what they do potentially becoming transformed in the next period by a more inclusive whole-body model. But they're not primarily the ones working on this new paradigm. Um, 
there are, um, I would say, at the vanguard of this thing, there are uh, a number of organizations such as uh, Defeat Autism Now, which is a part of the Autism Research Institute, which was started by Bernie Rimland um, as a way, uh, the Autism Research Institute, as a way of researching aspects of autism, increasingly it became that um, may not be uh, covered by other research enterprises. And Defeat Autism Now is a clinical group that started in 1995 um, and uh, promotes nutritional dietary and detoxification regimens. Interestingly, they have a reputation for being anti-vaccine, but I've talked with people who uh, remember the days when the people who run that organization were shocked by the very idea that vaccines could have something to do with it, and they didn't start out as an organization related to vaccines. And at the present time, they're moving in a direction of thinking more broadly about other toxins, more generally organophosphates and many other things. So Defeat Autism Now, or DAN, isn't that sort of known as a, a gathering place for the parents and clinicians who are particularly focused on, on these issues? Is that correct? That's correct. And they have conferences which are attended by clinicians and parents. They give a very large role to the per parents. They talk about having their their research and clinical practice be influenced to a great extent by listening to what parents tell them. <clears throat> and this is an important thing because many of the observations that parents make are dismissed as crazy by some of the more conventional practitioners. Now, you recently received the first Cure Autism Now Innovator Award, and you direct the Cure Autism Now Foundation's Brain Development Initiative. Where is Cure Autism Now on the spectrum? Uh, well, Cure Autism Now actually no longer exists. Uh -huh. uh, Cure Autism Now, I got that uh, award in 2004. Uh -huh. And Cure Autism Now, about a little less than a year ago, was absorbed by Autism Speaks. I see. They still have a presence. I mean, on, they have a, a web presence, but it is now Cure Autism Now slash Autism Speaks, as opposed to being an independent organization. So where is Autism Speaks on the spectrum? So Autism Speaks is in an interesting position. Um, they, are, they first absorbed the National Alliance for Autism Research, which was the other large parent-started autism research funding organization. So there was CAN and there was NAR. Um, and so now both of those organizations are absorbed within Autism Speaks. And um, there's a kind of, among the uh, people in the community who feel that the innovative treatments are critical, there's a lot of impatience with Autism Speaks for being too genetically oriented and not enough treatment oriented. They recently released a request for applications for grants related to complementary and alternative treatment. These grants are, people are writing them as we speak. In fact, I was on the phone about this about two hours ago with somebody. And they, the grant proposals will be submitted with a February deadline, so we haven't even seen what the review process will be like. I think one of the challenges is that you can put out a request for application for people to do innovative things. But then when you go through the peer review process, you need to find reviewers who are competent, knowledgeable, and capable of reviewing these things with an open mind, and that isn't easy. 
so it remains to be seen how this develops, but there's been a lot of pressure on that organization to be more responsive to treatment and environmental considerations. You also co-chair the Environmental Health Advisory Board of the Autism Society of America. Where does the Autism Society stand on these issues? The Autism Society is uh, the oldest and largest autism society in the United States, and it was also founded by Bernie Rimland. Um, and they have a, a they are a chapter-based organization, and they recently made a decision at the board level to encompass an environmental approach to autism. And they put out, um, oh, I should say we put out, because I was a guest editor, uh, a special issue of their magazine, The Advocate, a year ago, uh, on environmental health and autism. And a lot of that is available on their website, autism-society.org. And then there's a little space on the bottom right of that page on environmental health. And their mission statement is very strong on environmental health, and it links environmental issues with treatment issues. I work with them on a treatment-guided research initiative, and that's a, the goal of that is to build infrastructure to, to help the development of more standard intake uh, uh, infrastructure so that we can pool our information and begin to discern at least some kinds of patterns and, and develop standards of care so that this problem that you raised before, Michael, about some practitioners being brilliant and others being flaky, that we would at least have some more articulated standards for evaluating what's going on. So I think that ASA is really taking the bull by the horns here. Then there's a whole other set of organizations which, for short, most recently have started being called the MOU organizations, which means Memorandum of Understanding. It's a group of organizations such as uh, National Autism Association, Safe Minds, Generation Rescue, and a number of other organizations which have been in the vanguard of the advocacy around vaccines and also more broadly of environment and of treatment. And these organizations are working with ASA but also separately. Uh, ARI is Autism Research Institute, the one I mentioned before, started by Bernie Rimlin, is uh, coordinating this effort. Um, and they are developing their program as we speak since the Memorandum of Understanding is a new thing. So it sounds as if the new paradigm of autism research and treatment is making sometimes slow but in historical perspective remarkably rapid uh, progress through a wide range of autism advocacy organizations. Yeah, and it's not just that. I mean, I've been approached by people who have nothing to do with these advocacy organizations. I've been approached by a number of exceedingly high-level, mainstream academic researchers to work on these issues. There's a certain number of people who just get it. And um, so it's making its way through academic organizations. It's having more... Um, you now have the mention of gastrointestinal and immune uh, function much more without raised eyebrows and with kind of a matter-of-factness in relationship to discussions of autism. Again, not everyone, but much, much more than you had before. You have uh, foundations starting to support. I went to a meeting just a week and a half ago on um, a private meeting on gastrointestinal microbiome 
microbial organisms, probiotics and autism, which would never, and this is an organization that had in the, was known for spending lots of money on genomic research. So this, this, this organization had a major turnaround and is really thinking much more, really, really very much in the new paradigm. Uh, remarkable work of uh, investigators coming around to this approach. There was one particular person that was who was striking at this meeting was Jeremy Nicholson, who runs a large metabolomics lab at Imperial College in London, who has extraordinary work on um, what is very, very much into a new paradigm approach to not just autism, but many, many other chronic conditions as well. So uh, politically and even inroads in academia, yes. So I'd like to step back now from your deep immersion in the new paradigm of autism research and treatment uh, because you have nested that work in a history of much broader uh, philosophical and scientific interests. Your doctoral degree at the University of California, Santa Cruz, was uh, in studying evolution and the development of learning process in, in biology and culture and in the history of consciousness program. And you've done postdoctoral work in philosophy and the history of science. So there are many dimensions to this, but one of them is that you have nested this interest in an interest in what's happening to the earth as a whole. You are a participant in the Collaborative of health, on Health and the Environment, uh, which we are both a part of, which is a, a, a science community exploring uh, the impact of the environment on human health more, uh, broadly. So let's talk for a moment about the moment we find ourselves in in human history where technologies are transforming so many aspects of our environment, biotechnology, nanotechnology, environmental contaminants, climate change, uh, changes in nutritional manufacturing processes, and so on, uh, that human health appears to be being affected and, and the health of all life on Earth across the entire spectrum. How do you uh, synthesize uh, those issues in your own thinking and work? Well, uh, of course, the biggest questions here. Um, I think we're at a crisis of how to link human cleverness with human wisdom. And uh, we have found the capacity to penetrate material reality from the subatomic levels all the way out to the cosmic levels and at many, many levels in between. We've developed the capacity to manipulate this reality and create changes that we can predict. And on the basis of being able to predict that we'll create a certain effect, we've implemented these things into technologies. Um, where we've been short is understanding the systems in which our act actions occur. And this is partly a conceptual thing and also partly a very personal somatic thing, where various corrective feedback loops uh, that in the past were maintained 
to the extent that they were maintained by culture, and you could argue that they were also didn't have, it wasn't so hard to maintain them because there weren't so many technological capabilities. But we, we've disabled a lot of the feedback loops that would have kept things in balance almost as an intrinsic part, perhaps, of the advances that we see or that the, technical, the increases in technical capacities. So I think that we need to put, um, number one, we need to put these feedback loops and this wisdom and circumspection back. And uh, number two, we need to listen more to um, the people who are screaming in pain, the planet who is screaming in pain, the organisms and so forth, and we need to listen to the, the messages and the stories and the experience of what goes on around us. I think that we have an unfortunate capacity to split off and deny, and I think that we have, in a way, you know, sometimes I think about autism, it's, it's a disorder of emotional processing, if you call it that. I mean, that's one way of describing it. Some people don't even like to use the word disorder, but I think we have a process of coming to terms with getting out of the state of denial that there are problems and rushing headlong into the future and face facing the mess in which we find ourselves and which and which so many people are finding themselves to a heightened degree, such as individuals with autism. In Wild Duck Review, you uh, were interviewed by a very gifted uh, colleague of ours, Casey Walker, on an essay you wrote called Incomplete Science, the Body and Indwelling Spirit. And you contrasted uh, two different sciences, a control-oriented, disconnected belief system and a science shaped by systems-modulating, context-sensitive belief system. Could you say more about what, uh, what your central message in that essay was? Well... Yeah, I think that we the the, the context sensitive approach that we need to develop is something that is almost it's, I I in my experience I see it as obscured for for a, at least a significant subset of my science colleagues and for many other people. Uh, I personally think that there's something very deeply troubled that goes all the way back to the earliest childhood and even to childbirth, if not even before, where we, the, the quality of care and nurturance that we give and that we receive as infants and onward is not of the kind that would enable us to have this kind of fluid, trusting, interpersonal, what uh, a anthropologist I know named Richard Sorensen calls socio-sensuality. Um, and so you get a reaction to that of wanting to get a, con- a control over things, which, at, which is in fact an impossible control to get. I think that we're chasing this control and power at the expense of not admitting that we're failing to achieve it and that or if we achieve it in a particular domain, it's at the expense of chaos 
in domains much more broadly around it. Uh, and to admit that is really painful. And I think people will continue to fight admitting it. I'm re- I've been thinking a lot lately. Remember, Michael, a couple decades ago, Joanna Macy's work? Yes. I've been thinking that we really need something like that now. Now, Joanna Macy was talking about the emotional denial that we were facing a potential Holocaust. And I think what's really different now is that we are in the Holocaust. The Holocaust is already well upon us. And it's hard to believe that the the ideals of progress and better living through chemistry actually are not the reality that we're in. But as more of us get the veils torn from our eyes, we are transformed emotionally and spiritually into a commitment to um, make the world safe for people who see what we see and make it possible to take the actions that would be restorative and regenerative based upon the openness that we are working to achieve. I really think that, and I'm just starting to think more and more, that, that the, I, I hit this barrier with people of this emotional wall that I've been working very hard in my communications to be very gentle with people and not confrontational because that just keeps the wall up. Um, but I think that the gentleness and the kind of finding middle ground, as good as it is, um, there needs to be something yet beyond that, something almost cathartic to help us um, get a grip, really. And in fact, uh, you wrote an article called Get a Grip. Uh, yeah, Time to Get a Grip. Uh, what did you say? Well, I, I was about autism. It was in that environmental health issue of right. the Autism Society of America uh-huh. Advocate, and it's online. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and their website and mine. And, I mean, I said that, you know, people are interpreting this autism situation from their own perspectives, and we have very deeply held belief systems. But if you look at all the things that are going on right now, the the un- evolutionarily unprecedented changes in our biology, our geochemistry, our climate, our food, our, our everything that we do in so many ways is different than 150, 300, 500, 10,000 years ago. Enormous differences. Uh, and we don't, and, and the loss of biodiversity. Um, if, you have, if you have all that in your mind when you see these numbers increasing in autism, in diabetes, in allergy, in immune conditions, the dots connect very easily, and you say that until proven otherwise, uh, these problems are connected, and we are, in, we are putting ourselves into deep trouble in the worst way that we could imagine, and it's really time to just face it and get a grip. And in order to get a grip, we need to reevaluate what it is that we think we're trying to do. Rather than ever onwards and upwards, we need something much more restorative and regenerative. Regenerative is one of my favorite words. I think we need to regenerate. Now, I mean, what's different is we have science and the ability to perceive things through instrumentation that we can't perceive directly through our senses. Um, And that is not, unless we have an enormous cataclysm, we're not going to lose that, but we need to put that under the control of a sensitive approach to what we're doing and an approach that's committed to 
to making things work biologically, culturally, humanly. Our colleague Ted Shetler uh, of the Science and Environmental Health Network, also a participant in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment with us both, speaks of the ecological health paradigm, uh, which essentially suggests that uh, different people get the same disease for different reasons, very much the way you describe as the case in autism. And he takes this out to many, many of the uh, epidemic conditions of our time. And this, this paradigm, which one might also call the complexity paradigm, or there are other words we could use, uh, suggests, as you were suggesting, this extraordinary web of interactions not only between natural environmental factors, but between all these uh, nanotechnologies, electromagnetic fields, and all the uh, chemicals, and all the other alterations that we are introducing. Yeah. The question I want to ask you is, if we take that complexity paradigm or ecological health paradigm seriously, what happens to two things? One is our scientific research methods, and the second is... Uh, our regulatory frames for protecting human health and the health of all life on Earth. What are the directions, uh, both in knowing and in protecting, that we have to go as we understand ecological health or complexity theory more fully? Um, those are, I think, some of the most critical questions that we need to grapple with as we transition to a more regenerative, sustainable, restorative uh, world. Um, we've had this idea that you can have a study, you can have a level above this, it's dangerous, below this, it's safe. Um, and um, we've had this idea that we could have universal pieces of knowledge that applied context-free across many settings. For example, a gene does a certain thing the same way in a bacteria that, that it does in a human being. And all of this is just not working out. Um, I think that um, we have... I, this. It's a huge question. I, I, I think that the, I'm watching personally what looks to me like gridlock, uh, and we in in terms of regulation, and you can blame it. It's it, you know it's it's obviously confounded by the all kinds of political and political economic considerations. But I think that that's not all there is. It's not like if you just cleaned out the corruption that it would work again. It's really much deeper than that. Um, well, let me let me offer a suggestion that Ted Shetler and I have discussed, and I'd love to hear your reaction. We're getting close to the end of the hour, but um, if when we take this ecological health paradigm in which the complex interactions that cause different people to get different diseases are so complicated, yeah. it seems to me that one of the things you end up with clinically at the individual level and societally and ecologically is that any form of stress on the system that you can reduce yeah. and any form of nourishment or resilience building that you can introduce are, are good things to do. That is to say that 
because the system is so complex and because it is in such crisis, both at an individual level and at a collective level, that the complexity paradigm leads us to a stress reduction and nurturance and resilience enhancement ethic uh, that is fundamental both in clinical medicine and in planetary ecology. I would say I would agree with that very much, and I would also add that this is not going to be a piece-by-piece solution, that, you know, sound, balanced diet, really wholesome food. Remember Dick Gregory years ago saying, don't eat anything you can't pronounce? Right. And, um, you know, this is where I, I went recently to an autism and environment meeting at the Center for Discovery, and they have three organic farms, and the autistic residents there farm the farms. And so you have an integration of an agricultural restorative model with a, you know, a therapeutic model for individuals with autism. And I think that that's absolutely right on because we need, this is where the food system issues and the, you know, the neurobehavioral issues and the chronic disease issues all come together. You know, in your diet, it isn't just a question of taking a pill for this or a pill for that. It's a question of how wholesome, how really right is the whole thing. So I think that these things go together, and, and it's, it's not something you're going to be able to pick off one by one by an evidence-based medicine randomized clinical trial for each little tiny piece. It's a much more integrated transformation. Your website is www.marthaherbert.com. Is that correct? That's right. And I also have a research website called transcendresearch.org. Martha Herbert, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.